Well, happy Mother's Day to you. It's good to be here together with you in the Word. I just want to read a little excerpt of a passage of Scripture before we get into our time together that is a mother that the Lord thinks is great. Out of Proverbs 31, picking up in verse 25, and I know so many moms and women in our church who are like this and exemplify this and, and aspire to this. It says, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future, and she opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness, and her children rise up and bless her, and her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. And I thank you so much, moms who are with us and, and moms who are in heaven, very grateful, as mine is, very grateful for uh, moms who aspire to that. And so we say thank you to you. And on our Facebook page, I did write uh, a note to you moms to tell you how much I appreciate all that you do. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be pick up in verse 21 today. And we're kind of setting aside our Second Corinthians study just for the day so that we can have some time together in this most important passage. Forgiveness is a struggle for all of us at one time or another in our lives. We've certainly talked about it many times here. Uh, perhaps one of the greatest stories of forgiveness is an experience you may be familiar with from Corey Ten Boom, the author of The Hiding Place, after she had been released from a concentration camp. She was in a church in Munich in 1947, and she says, quote, I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat, and the brown hat and the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy and I, she said, had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. The man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. She goes on and says, now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, and he said, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time, she said, since her release that she had been face to face with one of her captives and her blood, she, seemed, she said, seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. And again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? Corey said, I stood there. And I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. 
for I had to do it, she said. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive, your men, forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, and she remembered this, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. Still I stood there in the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I cried out, Jesus, please help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feelings after that. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did that, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, she said, and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, she said, the former guard and the former prisoner, and I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Of all the human qualities that in make men and women in some sense resemble God, no quality is better suited to do that than forgiveness. And on this Mother's Day, we're going to study the scriptures concerning this all-important issue, not because moms need it most, but because all of us need it most, husbands and wives. And it is a very important foundation to a flourishing family. God is a God of forgiveness. He proclaimed himself that way in Exodus chapter 34. He said in verse 6, the Lord passed in front of him, Moses is there, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He says, I'm the God of forgiveness. That's who I am. Solomon said, it's a man's glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 19, 11. And now the theme of forgiveness obviously just resonates all throughout the scriptures. That's not surprising to us. But there are some sections that are really matted and framed, if you will, for us. While we see forgiveness of God highlighted in those areas. Uh, one of these places in this is the story of the prodigal son, which, which um, might be most familiar to you. Where you have the story of a father and two sons. One of them was... So anxious for his father to die, he didn't want to wait. He asked his dad for his, for his um, allotment of the funds, his inheritance, and departed. And went to a far city, the scripture says, and lived life as he wanted to in wickedness and perversion. And spent himself into poverty and destitution. And found himself in the most humble of places. And looking back over the course of his most recent escapades, realized that even his father's servants lived better than he was currently living. And so it came to his mind that he would go back to his dad and he would not ask for his place as a son, but simply come back and say, Dad, may I serve you as a slave? And of course, we know what happened with that. Jesus teaches us here how to forgive. And so he goes back towards his father, but we find that as he gets close, the father had been watching, apparently, for his son to return, no doubt praying for his son's return all that time. And so he was ready for it, and so his son comes in view, and the father doesn't even wait to, 
to, for the son to arrive, he runs to his father when he saw him at his distance, and his words that he speaks to him are not harsh. Uh, the Bible says he fell on his neck and what? And kissed him repeatedly. And so Jesus tells us that, that the heart of forgiveness is like this. See, And, and the heart of uh, forgiveness is here is the father and, and the heart uh, of God. And it's eager. It's not reluctant to forgive. It doesn't even wait for the sinner to arrive. In fact, uh, when you see him coming from far away, you run and meet him and embrace him and you kiss him. That's how the father embraces us. And And then he starts to say he's sorry, but you hardly even listen to him. You don't give him the time to finish. You just embrace him and love him and put a ring on his finger and get the best mead and, and start the music and rejoice with the friends and invite everyone uh, to celebrate because your son has come back. See, that's how God forgives. And Jesus was very clear about this. And I don't need to tell you that if this is the example from God, then it obviously is the way that he wants us to forgive. That's not even a question, is it? But the Lord also warns us uh, from that story of the prodigal son that forgiveness like that will often be unappreciated. Such forgiveness will be unmisunderstood. You remember, of course, don't you, the other son who never went anywhere. He didn't appreciate that at all. In fact, he he's angry with the father for being so forgiving. But the father can only say that he loves and he will always love, even the one that doesn't deserve forgiveness. And from that story, we really learn how God forgives, just eagerly and totally and lavishly. And is it any wonder, on the basis of that, that when Jesus taught us to pray, the best words that he could say and he could think of for us who have so great a need to be forgiven were the words from Luke chapter 11, verse 4, where he says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves, as we ourselves, also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And those words really hold our feet to the fire. They're the ones that came to Corey as she was facing the guard from Ravensburg. They tell us that God's forgiveness of us is really dependent on our forgiveness of others. Matthew 5, 7, of course, says it this way, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And from the other side, of course, James chapter 2, verse 13 tells us, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And the messages are pretty clear, I think, as we look at them. Uh, you want forgiveness, then you have to give it. You want mercy, then you have to give it. Cortinboom understood that understood that all too well uh, when the pain was still very fresh in her own heart, and she was lecturing on forgiveness in a church in Germany, and perhaps. The Lord was just checking on his own dear child there to make sure she had incorporated all the facets of the forgiveness she was teaching. And he wants, of course, us to forgive like that as well. For you never resemble his nature more than when you forgive. And here the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian believers, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And so there's this continual reminder of this lavish, eager, total type of forgiveness that runs to the sinner and spans the gap. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Bear with one another, forgive one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Again, and the gold standard is, just as Jesus forgave you, so also should you. Now, if you pull all of these together, and if you're taking notes, this is your first stop. 
you get this clear idea that God is a forgiving God. And we ought to be forgiving people. It's really just that basic. And so our, our first four principles that we kind of pull from the verses that just kind of started our time together. Number one, God is a forgiving God. Number two, God has forgiven you, so you should forgive. Number three, God will forgive if you do forgive. And number four, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Just very simple. I don't think you can, I don't think you can kind of maneuver around and miss any of those. And in doing that, uh, when you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. You really have breached the relationship that has to do with fellowship with God. Now, these principles are, are illustrated very clearly in Matthew chapter 18, which is our passage for this morning. So turn there if you would. And, and just briefly, we want to take this issue of forgiveness and, and take a look at it and really apply it to our households. That's really what I want, to, I want you to do today. Because I don't know how you connect with all of this, and you don't know how I connect with all this. We're pretty good at, at living inside our own head when we want to. problem is, we'll see as we let these kinds of things sit, that's a serious problem. It's going to create a serious problem. But let's look there, and let's just look at the teaching. And this is just so stark and so hard to teach. Probably the most difficult passage in all the New Testament, really, to teach. But I want you to read it. You may be familiar with it, but we'll, let's, let's do it. I want you to turn to Matthew 18. Uh, verse 21. I'm not going to put a slide up because I want you to have your Bible in front of you. So do that if you would. Take some a minute and grab one. Verse 21 picks this way. Then Peter came and said to him, so this is Jesus Peter's talking to, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and, for, and, and forgive him? And I forgive him. Up to seven times. And just as a footnote, the rabbis said three, so Peter thought he was being very generous in saying seven, really the, the perfect number I think he was thinking, the completeness. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now just again as a footnote, Jesus isn't asking Peter to do some math every time he's offended. That wasn't the point of that. He's just saying Keep on forgiving. As many times as someone sins against you, just keep on forgiving. Peter thought he was being very generous, and Jesus says, listen, you're not even where close. You just got to keep doing it. And then he tells this parable that makes the point, and you can't really move away from the seriousness of this issue because Jesus uses this, this time of Peter's question as a, a very important teaching time uh, for his disciples to understand some really foundational issues as it relates to their walk with the Lord. And the parable that depicts God and the sinner here, and the king in the parable is God, and the man who owes the big debt is a sinner. So I want you to pick up in verse 23. For this reason, so referring then to the seemingly unbelievable answer that Jesus gave to Peter, you just have to keep on going and forgiving. You don't get to stop after a certain amount of time. So for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, that's God, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, the first servant owed the king 10,000 talents. And just to give you some perspective on that, in the New Testament, a talent was the highest monetary unit of currency at the time. A talent was worth about 6,000 denarii. And you know, because we've spoken of it before, a denarius was a Roman silver coin equivalent about to a day's wages for a common laborer. So if a denarius was equal to one day's worth of work, then a talent was equal to approximately 16 years' worth of wages for the common laborer, and the servant owed 10,000 talents. So you get the idea. If, I mean, we've been talking about this, but talk about maxing out your credit limit. I mean, you are there. And so uh, this is truly an unpayable sum. And this is the first point of the passage. 
Look on to verse 25, if you would, and this is the second point. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had and repayment be made. So, in other words, the debt's too big to be repaid, but if all these people were sold into slavery and all the things were sold, at least the king gets something back. So to accrue, and if you think about it, to accrue this amount of debt, the man had obviously defrauded him in some way. Maybe it was a slave who was a tax collector and, and had authority over great amounts of money and had defrauded the king. Maybe it was he'd been involved in some business venture, which had been a total loss. It's really hard to know. Whatever the situation, the slave had been responsible, and now either through loss or fraud, he's not able to repay. And so the king probably said, you know, if I can't get what he owes, uh, I'll get what I can by selling him and his belongings and his family into slavery. Now look at verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you everything. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. The slave had the right heart, of course. He had a willing spirit, even though he could not have done it. His intention was right. That's God and the sinner. Uh, when the sinner comes before God and is convicted of his sin, uh, this unpayable debt, he's, he's convicted about that, and, and God tells him, you have no means to repay me, you should be sent to hell, and you should pay whatever you can pay, even though you can never repay me what you owe me. And that's what hell is, by the way. It is spending forever paying for what you can pay, but it will never be what you really owe, and that's the debt of affronting a God so greatly by continual sin and unrepentant and unconcerned wickedness and then rejecting the only one who could pay your debt. But this king is compassionate, and when he sees the man's willingness, he forgives the debt, just like God does. Very willing, very lavish, very generous. Now here comes the third point, verse 28. But that slave went out, so he'd just been forgiven. He goes out from the presence of the Lord and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now you can do the math there. The second servant owed the first servant 100 days wages for the common labor. The second servant had a debt that was certainly repayable. So this forgiven slave goes out and he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. And of course, the people who would be listening to Jesus tell this story at this point would be totally outraged. They're listening to this. They realize what has happened and what's been forgiven. They have a pretty good idea about the amount owed. And then they see the forgiveness and the generosity of the king. And then they see the slave go out immediately out of the king's presence and then come to someone who owes him something and then demands repayment. And they're outraged. And then verse 29 says, So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling, the first forgiven slave, to have patience, and went and threw him to prison until he should pay back what was owed. A couple of things to notice here. The second slave didn't come seeking forgiveness. He hadn't been brought before the first slave wasn't trying to be excused from what was owed. He was willing to pay. It was within his ability to pay. He wasn't begging out of his debt. And so this is really unthinkable, and it really reveals the heart of this first slave. Here is someone who's been forgiven this massive debt, 
who turned around and won't forgive someone a small debt. That really, when you cut it right down, that's really the basics of it. He's been forgiven an unpayable debt, and he won't forgive someone else a small debt. See, not only should he not have demanded repayment, what should he have done? Don't worry about paying me back. I mean, that would have been appropriate, right? So, it's just unthinkable. And then I ask you this question, how does this even happen? What's going on in the mind of someone who has had every part of an unpayable debt forgiven and won't forgive someone else, or at least let them work off what they owe, and even worse, go to someone and demand an accounting of an offense when they aren't even aware there is an offense? Who would do anything like that? That's what the people are thinking. Can you think of anybody? Hopefully not. Verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Verse 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. What did the Lord expect? What did the king expect? He expected forgiveness, didn't he? He expected that the first slave who'd been forgiven would go to the second one and say, I've been forgiven everything I forgive you. Don't worry about paying me back. And there's the principle again. You want mercy from God? Show mercy. You want forgiveness from God? You give forgiveness. Verse 34, And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now, just in case you think perhaps this isn't speaking about believers, look at verse 35. At verse 30, yes, verse 35. My heavenly Father, so this is Jesus speaking and bringing this home. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Stop right there. And as you can see, this parable may be one of the hardest to read in all the scriptures. The parable is so serious, as a matter of fact, that there are some who conclude the parable that Jesus is teaching here and the principles he is teaching couldn't apply to Christians, but there's no way you can avoid it. They do. Because the man who wouldn't forgive the slave was a forgiven man. And it's an illustration to help teach as a heavenly point that he's making to Peter about forgiveness. So this is a forgiven man. So this is Peter. This is everyone else who's in the crowd holding on to unforgiveness. So God had already forgiven him here in the parable. He's a child of God and it draws a sharp relief really the passages as we read earlier in Jesus' clear teaching about forgiveness and the statement from James. And then verse 35 says that it is imperative to avoid God's harshness that we forgive. Now catch the, catch the wording, our brother from our heart. And those words, of course, are used of believers dealing with one another. From the seat of the real you, you're to forgive totally, lavishly, completely the way the Lord forgave the first slave. And it really adds to our understanding that God will sometimes deal very harshly with his children who will not forgive someone else because this is an area of extreme rebellion. 
And it is reflected by the outrage that was expressed by all who looked on and had seen the whole story unfold by the huge debt that had been forgiven. Thomas Adams had some things to say about this. He's a very well-known and admired preacher called the Shakespeare of the Puritans. He lived from the late 16th century to the middle of the 17th. He said this, quote, He who demands mercy and shows none burns the bridge over which he himself must later cross. I think that captures it fairly well. And we can see, again, we can see some very important principles here, which I want you to notice, because they, they connect very well with, with the ones we saw earlier. Number one, you're never more like God's nature until you forgive. That's precisely what the parable is teaching. And two, such forgiveness should come easily because you have been forgiven. Number three, and in light of that, it should seem totally outrageous to us that we don't forgive. And number four, the Lord may need to deal very severely with you if you disobey in this very important area. And we understand that, I think, don't we? And I hope that the Lord's beginning to do his work in you as he's done in me this week as I studied this passage. But we dwell in a society, we dwell in a culture that knows very little about forgiveness, obviously. And not only does society know very little about it, they appear to care very little about it. Uh, one of the main illustrations that show us that is the destruction of marriages and relationships in our culture that springs out of unforgiveness. Our culture encourages us to be unforgiving. It makes heroes out of those who are unforgiving and are not willing to forgive. Thinking, of course, of the many movie plots based on someone who will not forgive and who goes and murders people out of vengeance. Hollywood knows that those tickets will sell. We have a society and sometimes a home which is filled with bitterness, filled with vengeance and anger and hate and hostility towards others, sometimes hidden in the mind and in the heart over time, but they're nonetheless doing its damage. And the attitude is obvious from the litigious attitude that many have, suing everyone for everything and whatever happens. It can be seen in the retaliatory kinds of crimes we see in road rage and poor sportsmanship and all the things that we see on the fields and everywhere around us. We have a culture that wants to make everyone else the reason for our difficulties, and a culture uh, wants to blame everybody for their problems on, and, and on someone else, offering no forgiveness, offering no release, and then be compensated for all of their problems. Now, for a Christian, the failure to forgive, I think we can see very clearly, is an act of disobedience. And no matter what the issue is, failure to forgive is unthinkable. It is outrageous, according to our passage. And if we didn't know before, we know now that sometimes the Lord may need to bring very difficult circumstances to bear on the life of one who won't forgive. And of course, not just that, unforgiveness can bring a lot of other things with it. And some of these things may help you identify whether you are clinging to unforgiveness. So in the time remaining from the Word of God, we're going to look at a few of these things that may be in your life and maybe make it apparent to you that you're clinging to unforgiveness. Number one. Clinging to unforgiveness will keep you chained to your past. And I'll just ask you this question, beloved. Do you find yourself rehashing old wounds, unable to move on? Even if it's in your own mind, do you find that? Do you dwell on those kinds of things? Because as long as you hold on to some offense and refuse to forgive, not only are you in violation of that extremely straightforward passage in Matthew 18, 
you are not receiving forgiveness yourself, and the Lord may have to deal harshly with you, but you are held a prisoner. And unforgiveness keeps that pain alive, and it keeps the sore open. Unforgiveness will never let the wound heal. You'll go through life reminding yourself of what was done to you, and you continue to chafe on that, that open sore, that open wound, and you stir up that pain, and you stir up a greater and greater degree of angerness and bitterness. And this happens in marriages all the time. We see this in marriage counseling. People will come, and they're in the last throes of, of their relationship, living in resentment inside their own heart. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, very clear about this. It tells us in very clear terms, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There's this, this definite progression that needs to be occurring in our life, of pursuing peace. And in that, being sanctified, setting apart more and more for the Lord as you pursue peace. And then verse 15 says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Shifter calls that a root of bitterness. And if you've ever spoken to someone who's lived in their own head for a while in a relationship and then spills it out to you, you find that they're going back quite a ways and that that root is under the ground there. Nobody sees it. But it's grown and it's nourished and it's fertilized and it's fed by unforgiveness. And this bitterness is not just a sin, it's an infection. It affects your whole life. You begin to occupy your time with remembering conversations and circumstances that led uh, to you having these thoughts and maybe you were offended and maybe there things were, were genuinely wrong that were done to you and you keep rehashing them and committing them to memory and they begin to shape who you are going through life accumulating all these bad feelings. I told you this before. I think many, a very, very high percentage of people who must see a professional counselor and need to go on some type of, of uh, drug in order to help them feel better are people who are trapped in this vicious cycle. It's guilt and unforgiveness. Those things can completely destroy the individual. Both have been dealt with by the Lord, but either of them held on to over a long period of time can destroy an individual just accumulating bad feelings. And it says not only that, not only are you allowing that root of bitterness to, to spring up, causing all kinds of trouble, and by it it says many be defiled. So uh, there's just so many other ripples that happen as that surfaces, that root is drawn all over the place. Many people are defiled by the root of bitterness. And, and if you think about that, what is the point of that? See, setting aside everything that we've already talked about and how dire a situation that you may be in because you're holding on to these offenses over time, you know, what virtue in our household does that produce? Think about that. Unforgiveness is its own whip, and you let that person go on offending you for the rest of your life, and for all the times you go back in the past, you stir up that unforgiving attitude, you build and you accumulate and you pile up anger and you pile up bitterness, which robs you of your health and the joy of living and causes you no end of grief, and lots of people are affected by it because of selfishness and pride, and there's no relief in sight. See? And all of these things uh, the Lord dealt with in Matthew 18, and Paul very clearly over and over again has encouraged us and admonished us to forgive just as God has forgiven you. And conversely, though, instead of bitterness, 
Verse 14 says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Forgiveness opens the door see, and lets the prisoner out. And guess who the prisoner is? That's you. And it works the work of sanctification. That's holiness in you. As you forgive, you begin to walk more closely with the Lord and your, your nature begins to resemble him more and more. See? But you can't resemble him when we're holding on to unforgiveness. It's impossible. It's outrageous that we hold on to it. And if I, if I want you to see anything, husbands and wives, I want you to see this. It's, it's outrageous when we think about what's been done on our behalf. I'm not saying that it's easy. Corten Boom perhaps had the most difficult. We've probably never had anything anywhere close to that. And she struggled, but she was able to overcome. Why? Because it's an act, a volitional act, and you have the ability to do it by the Holy Spirit residing there in your heart. And so, very important points. It's going to work the work of sanctification and holiness in you. It destroys that root of bitterness, chops it up, makes it ineffective. And that root of bitterness, of course, just destroys relationships and marriages and families and children and fellowships and lives and testimonies and ministries. Number two. Not only will it keep you chained to your past, failing to forgive will change your character. It'll change your character. And here's the question. If you want to know if you're holding on to unforgiveness, have you noticed that you have a lot of sarcasm in your life? Holding on to offenses will make you become sarcastic. Are you caustic? Are you condemning? Are you easily angered? You have a very short fuse? Just so that you know, those are not gifts from the Holy Spirit. Those are symptoms of an unforgiving heart. Unforgiveness and holding and failing to forgive will give you a nasty disposition. Irritated by the memory of something that you won't forgive, your thoughts become malignant towards others. Philip said to Simon, who had believed in Acts chapter 8, verse 23, For I see that you are in the, I love this, gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Simon had a real anger problem, didn't he? He was in the gall of bitterness. He had held on to it. How could he know that Simon was in the gall of bitterness? The only way he could know is by listening to someone talk. And you can tell this, can't you? Sarcasm caustic, easily angered. Someone does something, they're immediately, you're immediately all in their face about it. Maybe it's self-talk, maybe it's in the car, whatever it is. It changes your character. Simon was bitter and held in bondage. He had a distorted view of life. That's what unforgiveness will do. Literally poisoned his whole existence. That's the idea. That's what happened. Proverbs 14.10 says, the heart knows its own bitterness. When that dominates your life, you dwell on it, and you're living in the flesh. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 14, it tells about those who live in the flesh, what that looks like, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You find that you have profanity in your heart very quickly. Does that rise to the surface very quickly in your mind? Even a casual conversation becomes the stage for gossip and slander against the offender. As I said before, that happens, it seems, very often in marriages. Two Christians married to each other should never be divorced. They should never be separated. And they should enjoy a happy relationship. That's by God's design. It takes work. And, and it is called the grace of life. It's the best possible thing that can be given to someone. Now, 
I've said this before, but when I walked down the aisle, I married a sinner. What's unbelievable is that she did too. And in, um, sorry, I'm imagining my wife sitting at the table right now. And in light of that, it's obviously impossible for us not to offend each other. And it doesn't just happen once on occasion, it happens all the time. But where forgiveness is operating, the offense is one moment in time come and gone. And that's how the Lord designed that to work. But where there is no forgiveness for that offense, there is accumulated bitterness, and it begins to turn you against your own partner. It makes you self-righteous. It makes you sulky. It closes off your affection. It closes off your kindness to your uh, your wife or your husband. It destroys that relationship. And we see that much more often today as coupled married, couples married for years will file for divorce as a result of an accumulated anger and bitterness which fertilized and was cultivated by unforgiveness and it changed their characters. And they don't even recognize each other anymore. But where forgiveness is there for the offense, bitterness is destroyed. And it's replaced with love and it's replaced with peace. See, that's the sanctification by which no one will see, without which no one will see God. See, these are the kinds of things that come. Joy and love and peace and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. Fruit of the Spirit become evident. And, and here's the question. Aside from everything we saw in Matthew 18, aside of everything we've seen in, in the number of the verses, why would anyone want to live in the prison of their own past? See, Or want to live with accumulated bitterness, that's its own whip. Or live in such a way that it begins to change your character and you become sulky and condemning and easily angered and sarcastic. Why would we want to live there? Why would anyone gladly receive the benefit of forgiveness of an unpayable debt and turn around and not forgive and risk the severity and chastening of the Lord in that process for that outrageous attitude. Why would we even want to live there? Number three, unforgiveness gives Satan an open door. Gives Satan an open door. Unforgiveness really throws out the welcome mat and invites the demons in and where you have unresolved bitterness and unresolved anger, where you have an unforgiving spirit, you have given place to the devil, and all of those demons don't come in without an agenda. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 very clearly says, be angry and yet do not sin. So there's a way for you to be angry, righteous anger. Be angry that way, but not in self-righteousness, not in causticness, not in, not in nastiness, not in condemningness, right? Whatever's the, the words that are, you're supposed to speak words of peace, whatever's upright, so there's a way to have an anger and yet do not sin. But here's, here's our point that I wanted to make. What's it say? It says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. I do not give the devil an opportunity or a foothold. And here's the idea. If you go to, if you go to bed at night and you're not fully forgiven so that your anger is gone, what happens? You, you give Satan a foothold or an opportunity. So regardless of whether you and your wife or you and your husband have worked out the differences between you, what are you required to do? Forgive before you go to bed. Just forgive. They may not. They may be the offending party. What do you have to do? Forgive. Why do you have to forgive? Because you've been forgiven of what? An impayable debt. 
So you don't want to go to bed at night holding on to that anger because you give Satan a foothold. You just roll out the welcome mat. Come on in. And you, and you, and you can't wait. And, and here's the thing. Some of you have already done that over and over and you've waited for years. In fact, this is your habit of waiting. Remember Paul, very, a very direct statement to the church in 2 Corinthians 2.10. He says, I forgive. I forgive in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul knows that, un that failing to forgive the offense allows the devil to have an opportunity in an unforgiving heart and in an unforgiving life. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that most, most of the ground I think that Satan gains in our lives is due to unforgiveness. In fact, this is where the scripture says we roll out the welcome mat for him. So we can't set that aside as unimportant. Forgiveness is disimportant. Most of the ground he gains is through unforgiveness and we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's what Paul says to move in on an unforgiving attitude and destroy that relationship. And that's not surprising then that it should change our character and the way we interact with people and how caustic we become. But you can evict, if you will, most demonic trespassers by forgiving quickly and totally. Number four, last one. Unforgiveness interferes with your fellowship with God, just obviously. And here's the question. Are you struggling in your walk with the Lord? You struggle with your time in the Word, we encourage you all the time. Be in the Word each day. Are you struggling to do that? Do your prayers seem to go no further than the ceiling? Holding on to offenses will interrupt your walk with Jesus, that's for sure. We saw that Jesus said, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive men their sins, the Heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. In fact, he said that while he's teaching his disciples to pray. And that's not a coincidence. So in our ongoing relationship with God, if I don't forgive others, he doesn't forgive me. And so if, if I'm not right with you, then, then I'm not right with him. Get it? You're not going to be able to go into your quiet time if you've offended your wife, men. If you are acting caustically and sulky and, and you're very critical, and then you think somehow you're going to be okay by going and spending time in the Word of God, you're not going to be until you have that horizontal relationship fixed. In fact, 1 Peter 3.7 addresses husbands specifically and says, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. So in an overall understanding who she is, how she works, what she needs. You need to be taking some time with that and understanding this person who the Lord has given to you. And then giving honor to the wife. So you have to honor her and lift her up and place her on a, if you will, a pedestal. So that your, what, prayers be not hindered. So it just goes without saying, if you're treating your wife in an unforgiving manner, if you're treating her somehow with disrespect, if you're, if you're not washing her with your words, but you're criticizing her constantly, don't expect somehow that your prayers will not be hindered. Your prayers will be hindered. And you've rolled out the welcome mat, and you've changed her character, and all these kinds of things begin to take effect in your life. And in light of all of those things, you know, if we, if we just set all that aside from Matthew 18, why would I want to sentence myself to be in any other place other than to receive the maximum blessing from God in this grace of life which he has given? What kind of foolishness is that? And you may say, well, 
you know, you don't know how she is or you don't know how he is and they just act a certain way all the time. I understand that. You still have the obligation to extend forgiveness. Why? Because you have been forgiven an unpayable debt. That still stands very starkly in opposition to this attitude of self-righteousness that you tend to bring to the table. And it goes either way. Why would you want to be in a place outside the maximum blessing from God? Marriage is the grace of life. You're inhibiting your prayer life, your ability to minister to her, to him. What kind of foolishness is that? What, what benefit is it to cut off the benefits of a rich, full fellowship with God that he desires to have with you and that he very clearly indicated in the parable of the prodigal son where he watched and ran and brought the son in? That's how you got in. That's how I got in. Don't forget that. So as we close up, you may have asked yourself these questions. You may have found out answers you didn't really want to admit. But if you're admitting them, this is a good start. How do I do this? How do I practice this tomorrow? What do I do if I want to get over this? Well, this issue of forgiveness is dealt with at great length in the Scriptures, and we don't have time to go through all of them. At least 75 different word pictures and scriptures just deal with forgiveness. And they're all there to help us grasp something about the nature of forgiveness so we can understand what forgiveness looks like. So I'm going to give you just a few in the time that we have left that are straight from the Word of God. From Isaiah 38:17, to forgive is to take all the of, the of the offense and put it behind you and not look at it again. Take all the offense... What do I do with it? Put it behind you and don't look at it again. Well, how can I possibly do that? Because you've been forgiven an unpayable debt and it's outrageous to think that you're hanging on to it. But God gives us this great word picture in Isaiah 38, 17. Take all the offense and put it behind you and don't look at it again. Isaiah 43, 25. To wipe it off the board where you wrote it and not think on it again. To wipe it off the board. To completely erase those things so they are no longer visible. Can you do that? You can. As Cortempum found out, that's an act of the will, and you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you can do that. Psalm 103, verse 12, this is a great one. Take the offense and send it east, and you head west. Take the offense, send it east, and you head west. Leviticus 16:10. Take the offense and you put it, as it were, on an animal and set it free into the wild. You're never going to see it again. That's forgiveness. That's a word picture God gives us. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. To put all the offenses against you on the ground and step on them until they disappear into the mud and you no longer see them again. Those are pretty important illustrations, I would say. Jeremiah 31, 34. To be deliberately forgetful. The Lord says, I have forgotten all your iniquity. The Lord says that. It's amazing that he's God, and yet he has forgotten our iniquity. Colossians 2, 14. To write over the debt paid in full. We sang about that this morning. Did you sing it with us? My debt. Been nailed to the cross. It is gone. My life has been bought. 
That's what forgiveness looks like. And if you've allowed that to grow a root of bitterness in your heart, it might take you a little while to dig that out. There's your starting points. I remember reading a story about Thomas Edison working with several others in, on a crazy contraption called a light bulb. He spent nearly 24 straight hours putting together one bulb. When Edison was finished with the light bulb, he gave it to a young apprentice who nervously carried it up the stairs, step by step, cautiously holding uh, the bulb, watching his hands, obviously afraid of dropping such a time-consuming and priceless piece of work. But in his nervousness, he dropped the bulb at the top of the stairs where it shattered into hundreds of tiny pieces. It took the entire team of men almost 24 more hours to make another bulb. Finally tired and ready for a break, Edison was ready to have his bulb carried up the stairs and to the other surprise, Edison gave it to the same young boy who dropped the first one. Forgiveness is such a remarkable thing, isn't it? And of course, as we looked at at the beginning, Colossians 3.13, we saw earlier, that becomes so important as if it wasn't already. But now we know all the repercussions for not doing it. Paul says, bear with one another. It means be long-suffering. You don't have to be easily offended. Did you know that? Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And husbands and wives, can I tell you this? You may save your relationship by beginning that right now. Two people don't go into a marriage and think at the altar, 12 years from now, I'm going to hate this person. I'm going to despise everything about them. I'm going to be caustic and disrespectful to them constantly, and I can't wait to be free of them. No one says that. And yet, that's precisely what happens many times. How do you think that happens? We know precisely how that happens, don't we? root of bitterness which defiles many and it's fertilized and planted and allowed to grow underneath the surface by unforgiveness it's watered and cared for by holding on to bitterness and that is so outrageous isn't it when we think about the unpayable debt that we have been forgiven this matter of forgiveness is so important it's right at the very foundation of mind and your marital and spiritual health and our life and the family God may have given you with all its work and all its responsibilities and its joys. Our life is for the glory of Christ. Our, our life is for his sake. It's for his name. And quite frankly, if you're devoted to that, you're going to forgive and it's defined for us already. We just looked at what forgiveness looks like. We looked at why we should forgive. It's been put on display. You've experienced it. And, and so we can't say in one comment, I want to do everything for the glory of Christ, but I don't think I'll forgive you. And I want to do all for the glory of Christ, and I'm so grateful for my salvation and forgiveness, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to demand someone else pay their debt. You, you can't say that and be honest. See, What you have to say is, I'm not going to forgive you, so Christ, I'm not interested in your glory. I'm interested in vengeance. I'm interested in my opinion. I'm interested in serving me. I want to have forgiveness, but I'm not willing to give it. And with that action, you stand in very poor company. 
If you want to honor Christ, then you're going to forgive as he forgave you, right? And if you want to do it, think of it as a commitment never to take vengeance. Can you start there? Just make a commitment never to take vengeance on people who have done something to you. It, it, make a declaration of love that states, I hold no resentment to you. I hold no hate. I hold no bitterness. I'm not going to bring up the offense to you. I won't bring up the offense to anyone else. I won't bring it up to myself and dwell on it. I won't think about it anymore. That's biblical forgiveness. Because as it relates to you and I, that's what God does. And that's what Christ does. Sir Thomas More, Lord Chancellor of England under King Henry VIII, was executed on July 6th, 1535, at the age of 57. He was reported to have said these words to his accusers after being tried in Westminster and condemned with no just cause. He said, quote, As Paul held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death, and as they are both now saints in heaven and shall continue there friends forever, so I verily trust shall therefore most heartily pray that though your lordships have now here on earth have been my judges to my condemnation, we may nevertheless hereafter cheerfully meet in heaven in everlasting salvation. Isn't forgiveness a beautiful thing? Isn't it lovely? The words are so sweet. What a tremendous virtue to forgive. Spell me dismissed in prayer. Would you do that with me right there where you are? Father, we thank you today for a chance to be in your word. We thank you for this little break uh, on this Sunday where we celebrate the joy of motherhood. So grateful, Father, as we started at the beginning for those who have ministered to us as moms, even not biological moms, ones who though have pointed us to Jesus and thereby have done precisely why what you've put moms on the earth to do. Thank you for the faithfulness in our mothers at Berean and around, and around the church who, who do these kinds of things. We're grateful for that. And Father, as we looked at our passage today to safeguard that precious relationship of husband and wife and family and children, Lord, help us to be very careful about a root of bitterness. And if one is there, even if it's small, Father, I pray today that you, by your Holy Spirit, have convicted and that will begin to be uprooted and thrown away and a new pattern of life where there's no resentment and we don't hold on to hate and we don't hold on to bitterness and we don't bring up the offense to one another and we don't dwell on it anymore ourselves and we don't self-talk about it. These are the kinds of things we want to do. These are the types of reactions to living with another sinner in our household will demand. And the highest hurdle, of course, Lord, is the one that you placed in front of us, which is we've been forgiven an unpayable debt. How outrageous it is. How grievous, Scripture says, to hold on to unforgiveness when we've been forgiven. Father, I pray that by releasing unforgiveness and we release ourselves, we also release ourselves from the jeopardy of being under your severe treatment. For you refuse to allow those who call on your name and claim salvation to live in unforgiveness without chastening. 
and sometimes of the most severe kind. So as always, Father, we obey because we love you first and foremost, because we inherit a kingdom that doesn't fade away and we're thankful. But we also obey because at the bottom of all of that, you have the right to deal with us and our sinfulness any way you desire to bring us into conformity to what your word says. It's a very, very foundational issue of forgiveness. Help this not to be an area where we struggle anymore. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and for sake 